any five-year-old what they want to be when they grow up, you'll never hear things like, actually, what you'll hear is things like Batman, right? You'll hear things like a doctor. You'll hear things like a dinosaur. Um, it's interesting. Uh, we were over at my parents' house. Uh, and if you're visiting with us today, I just kind of give you a little context. Uh, the senior pastor, the lead pastor of our church is, is, is my father. And we were there, and my five-year-old is asked the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he thinks about it for a minute, and he looks at my dad, and he says, the boss pastor of Pleasant City Church. <laughs> and my dad looks at him and says, uh, so you want to take my job? And he says, yeah, that's what I want to do. But think about that. Most, most five-year-olds have a pretty generally optimistic future on their life. No, one, no five-year-old ever says, I want to be an alcoholic one day. They never say, I want to be a bad parent. They never say, I want to be a drug addict. They never say these kind of things because no one sets out to ruin their life. In fact, most people have a generally positive outlook on life, and yet so many people, so many people find themselves later in life or in a season of li in life in ruin. And what we found to be true about our future is that the greatest threat, the threat against what God desires for your future is not out there somewhere, it's within. It's not some enemy out there it's the person you see in the mirror every morning. And what we said about our future, this is all from last week, but what we said about our future is that our future, there's three realities that are true about every person's future in the room. The first reality is this, that your future is determined by choices. And primarily two different types of choices. That God works in you if you choose to let him. That God is sitting there wanting to pour out blessings within our life. Physical, we talk a lot about physical, but more than that, spiritual blessings. That God wants to work in us in a powerful way that brings about a glorious and joy-filled future. But he will only work in us if we allow him to do that. That God works in us when we choose to let him. But also, God works through you if he chooses. That God can use anyone, whether they're lost or saved, whether they're running from God or running to God, God can choose to use anyone or anything to accomplish his purposes. And this is what we see in the life of Samson. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14. And if you have your Bible app there, you can open that up. Or if you have our app at the web, uh, on our, our church app, you can open that and follow along with the outline there. But in Judges chapter 14, we have been in the life of Samson now. This is our second week talking about the life of Samson. What we found to be true about Samson is that Samson's life started out pretty great. There were some great things that happened early on in Samson's life. If you go back and read Judges chapter 13, the, the actual main character of the, the chapter of Judges 13 is actually Jesus. That Jesus himself shows up and announces the birth of, of Samson, which is pretty amazing. I mean, that's never happened to me, but he announces the birth of Samson. He says, this is the guy. He is going to begin to, be, to, begin to deliver the people of Israel. 
And, and Samson is told, Jesus tells his parents, hey, he's going to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is someone that is set apart, that is holy. A Nazarite is a person that does not consume grapes of any kind. It, it, he does not touch anything dead, and he's not allowed to cut his hair. And as weird as that sounds for us in our culture and context, this is something that God commanded over Samson's life. And the reason it's so important for us to understand this is because as we look at Samson's life, we have to get the fact that he breaks this all the time, that God commanded him. He said, this is what I want you to be about. This is the standard I have for you. And yet we see Samson failing God every step. It seems like every step Samson takes is he's putting himself on this path of ruin. So we've been in this series called How to Ruin Your Life in Five Easy Steps. And it's kind of a weird title. And to be honest, it's kind of a negative title when you start thinking about that. But this is what we see in Samson's life. We see these moments, these steps that he takes to ruining his life. And the first step we talked about last week was this idea of entitlement, that, that for many people, that they're on this path of ruining their life by just affirming their misguided entitlement. And we saw this in Samson, that Samson desired a bride from the enemy, and he says, hey, go get her for me. So he, he goes and begins to court this woman that he has no business courting, no business dating, and he, he starts his life out like that. We also see this idea of, of concealing his sin, that Samson was a man that also concealed his sin. And you've got it there in your handout, but there's, there's solutions to these, that we don't have to walk down a path of either one of these, that maybe there's people in the room that, man, I know I'm convicted in this. I've, I've struggled with entitlement. And God's saying to me, hey, remember where you came from. Remember that you were originally entitled to, set to hell and death and I'm no longer on that path, that God has put me on a different path. And because of that, I don't have to walk around in my misguided entitlement. And secondly, this idea of concealing sin that God has told us, he's made a solution for us right here in scripture that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful and just to set us free from that. And that what we decide to cover is ultimately going to be uncovered. That that's the nature of sin. That sin is one of those things where it's made to come out. And so if you're in here this week and maybe there's some concealed sin in your life, maybe you're in that step right now, man, God is saying, confess, uncover that. Allow God to cover that in your life. And we see this is, this is Samson's path, right? Samson goes into a, a vineyard and, and, you know, is touching dead animals, breaking his vow, and he chooses to keep all of this separate. He chooses to keep it all concealed. You see, Samson's life, and we talked about this last week, Samson's life is not a model of someone that we want to emulate, that when we look at the life of Samson, as, as amazing as his strength was, as amazing as how God worked through him, when we look at Samson's life, no one really needs to want to emulate this man. That Samson's story, the, the judge's story, this is what it's for. It's for two reasons. One, it's a warning of what a ruined life looks like. That we can look at the life of Samson and say, I don't want to go down that path. It's a warning of a ruined life, but secondly, it's the promise of a truer and better deliverer. 
that when we read through the book of Judges, we're not looking here just to put ourselves within the story, but we're looking at at the book of Judges to say, hey, we are realizing that there is a better deliverer than Samson. And he's gonna come 1,100 years later onto the scene and deliver his people. So when we look at these steps, it's easy for us to think, okay, this is just some kind of neat little formula. If I I misstep here and I step here, then I can just not have a ruined life. Well, the, the fact of the matter is all of us are ruined, right? We all came to a place in our lives where we were lost and we were forsaken, but God came in and changed all that for us. He is the ultimate deliverer. So the beauty about all of these steps is that we don't have to walk in our own strength to accomplish these things for God. We don't have to walk in our own strength. We can allow God's spirit to work in us, not just through us, but in us as well, if we will choose to let him. So this is the story of Samson. So as we look at these, at these steps, I pray that God would begin to open up our hearts and say, hey, we don't want to walk the way Samson walked. We want to walk the way the better deliverer, the truer deliverer walks. That's Jesus. So we're picking up the story here in Judges 14, and Samson is about to marry this Philistine woman. Look at with me in verse 10. It says this, so his father went down to the woman that he's, that he's going to marry, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions or friends to be with him. Now, want to say a couple things about this. This was not your typical church fellowship with brownies and sweet tea, all right? It's really important to understand that. In fact, the word feast here, if you go look it up, the Hebrew word for, for feast, it comes from the same word which means to drink, all right? So this is not some church fellowship with brownie and sweet tea. No, this was a drinking party, all right? This, Samson, again, finds himself in the wrong place with the wrong people, right? This is where we find Samson. And so Samson's at this party and he's living it up. And, and, and he decides to play a game with these guys. I don't know if this was like a popular drinking game back in the book of Judges or what, but this is the game he plays. He puts forth this riddle to these 30 friends that are now with him. Look at verse 12. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle, that we may hear it. So Samson tells this riddle, and it's the riddle that has to do with the lion and the honey, the stuff that he was in the vineyard for. Now remember, no one knows this story. No one knows because he chose to not tell anyone. He chose to keep that concealed. So the only way to figure this riddle out is to hear Samson's key, right? To hear the story of what happened. Well, he hasn't told anybody. And so they are trying to figure out what this riddle means. And this is where it gets really weird and a little violent, okay? These 30 companions, these 30 friends of Samson, we begin to understand what their character, what the character that's really going on inside of them. Look at with me in verse 15. But it came to pass on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, okay? So now they're, they're trying to figure out what this riddle's about. They can't figure out. They go to Samson's betrothed wife, 
right? And he, they say to her, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Now, well, I don't know if you're following the same story, but this escalates pretty quickly, right? I mean, we're going from a simple harmless riddle where there's a wager involved to life and death with these 30 companions. And this tells us a lot about the companions, the friends of Samson, and it speaks about the friends that we have in our lives. And I wanna just kind of show you this because I feel like this is step three for Samson. This is the step that we find him on in a path to ruin. And it's a step that if we're not careful, we will find ourselves on. And it's this, if you wanna ruin your life, choose the wrong friends. Choose the wrong friends. Friends, you know, often we think about this and immediately we're thinking, all right, this doesn't apply to me. Why? Because, because that's something that you talk about with students. That's something you talk about with middle and high school. That's something you talk about with college age. You know, that doesn't really apply to me. And, and parents, if you're a parent in the room, you have a heavy weight and a heavy responsibility to help your children choose the right friends, that it is an important part of their young adult adolescent life. But here's the truth. Choosing the right kind of friends or choosing the wrong friends is not just a student sensitive issue. This is an everybody issue that every single one of us, that our lives are strongly affected by the friends that are in our lives. And when I say friends, I'm talking about people that we are actually engaged with, that we actually associate with. You know, it's interesting. Social media has kind of decaffeinated the word friend, right? I mean, when we think of friend now, we think of the people on our Facebook accounts, right? All the thousands upon thousands or hundreds upon hundreds of friends that we have. But that's not the term or that's not the way we need to think about friendship. These are people we barely, have, we barely do life with. They're, if anything, they're uh, more of correspondence. And some of those people, I was looking through my friends the other day and I was like, I don't even know half these people. I don't know if y'all go through that, but what we're talking about here is we're talking about true friends. We're talking about people that are in our lives on a week-to-week -week basis. What kind of friends do you choose to have? There's a little uh, formula I want to throw on the, on the board, and uh, I hope it kind of makes sense to you, but it's, it's a pretty interesting formula. Association, association leads to participation, and participation leads to destination. And, and I heard a, a pastor say this one time. I thought, man, that's really good. He says this. This is basically this formula summed up in a real condensed, easy version. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. Show me your friends and I will show you your future. What he's saying here and what, what really I believe the word of God teaches is that who we choose to associate with, the people in our lives that we choose to associate with, that typically leads to participating in whatever it is they're doing. And we all know this to be true because if you've been a parent in the room or if you're a student in the room, you've seen this play out right? That the people that we choose to align ourselves with, the people we choose to associate with, those are the very people that we find ourselves participating in whatever it is they're doing. 
And then it leads from participation to destination. This idea goes back to what we talked about, talked about that our choices, the things that we choose to participate in affects our future. It affects the destinations in our lives. And so when we look at the idea of wrong friendships, this is huge. And God backs this up with his word. Proverbs 12, 26 says that the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. We all know, probably a lot of us know this verse. We've heard it if you grew up in church. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That the friends that we choose to have in our lives, the people that we associate with, have a profound influence on our destinations in life. So the question is, how do you know who the wrong friends are? How do you know who the wrong friends are? There are so many ways we could talk about this and we could spend a whole month on just this talk. But man, I want you to just gather three things here that I, that I notice about the wrong kind of friends. The first idea is this, that wrong friends are sad for your successes. They're sad for your successes. They are not really excited about the things that you succeed in in life. They're not excited about that. In fact, instead of, just, instead of just being sad for your successes, they're actually fans of your failures. That these are people that want you secretly to fail. And that's tough to think about, but we, we hear this a lot. In fact, students kind of have a word for this, and it's pretty interesting. Maybe you've heard this word, but they call them frenemies, Right? It's people that you say, oh yeah, we're friends, let's post for a picture. But really, you kind of know what they're really about. You kind of know that they're not really rooting for you in the greatest sense. And if you want to know who those kind of people are, because it's really hard to spot them, right? No, no friend of yours is going to come up to you and say, I want you to fail, right? But you know how you spot these people? You understand and you listen to how they respond and react and talk about their friends, because how they talk about their friends is probably how they talk about you behind your back, right? But these are what the wrong friends are. These are people that are sad of your successes and they're fans of your failures. And this is what Samson was dealing with. He was dealing with people who did not want him to succeed to the point that it was extreme, to the point that it was life and death. They were the wrong friends and they weren't the only wrong friends he had. Look, look with me in verse 16. Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. It's so funny. Uh, like you can hear the manipulation, right? You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? That's interesting, by, by the way. Now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he finally gave in and told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. So she hounds this man for days and days and days. And he says, look, if I ain't gonna tell my mom and daddy, I ain't gonna tell you, which is not really a good thing for a husband to say, but he ain't gonna tell her. And so she hounds him and hounds him and hounds him. And finally, she he tells her, and literally, it's, it's almost this idea of immediate happen. Then, immediately, she goes and explains it, explains it to her people. 
Notice she says that, her people, my people. Samson's own wife betrays him. And this is the biggest thing about wrong friendships. The biggest thing, the biggest truth about the wrong friends in your life is this. Wrong friends are detractors from your deliverer. They are detractors from your deliverer. Now, think about this. Why didn't she bother to tell Samson the truth? I mean, this guy is strong. This guy is mighty through the power of the Holy Spirit. This guy is said to be the deliverer. And yet here's the truth about this woman. She did not believe in his ability to deliver her. She didn't believe in her and his ability to deliver her. And ultimately, she didn't believe in the ultimate deliverer of the story. You see, and you see this all throughout this scripture, this woman was not like Samson. You see this through the scripture, through the text we just read that she's this, this idea of Samson and his family and her and her people. This dichotomy, this, this two groups of people, these people who trust in the ultimate deliverer and these people who don't trust in the ultimate deliverer. And, and this is the biggest problem with the wrong group of friends, that they will always detract and distract you away from our ultimate deliverer, your ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ. They will always do it. We've heard this verse before, but 2 Corinthians 6, 14 talks about this idea of being, uh, don't be unequally yoked. And immediately we hear that and we think, okay, that's for married people. That's for when you're dating. Why, why do we just assume it's for marriage? No, it's this idea of any relationship that we choose to have in this life should be this idea, these close friendships should be this idea of a close, equally yoked friendship people that are not going to detract us from Christ and distract us from what he's really about. You see, you can have, you can have friends that maybe those first two things, maybe you really do have a good, a good, kind person, a person that's not sad for your successes and a person that's not a fan of your failures. You might have people in your life that truly do have your well-being at interest, but here's the thing, man, if they are detractors from Christ, they're still the wrong friends. Because those are the kind of people that they are gonna live their lives, either knowing it or unknowingly, they're gonna live their lives, always belittling Christ when you're around them. My son had a pair of uh, binoculars. I gave him a pair of binoculars. We were going camping a couple years ago and um, I bought him like a little, a little set of binoculars or whatever to go camping. And it was for both boys because we're cheap like that. We're not going to give them each a pair. They got to share. Um, but, you know, they're, they're taking turns looking through the binoculars. And my son, Will, he's like, these don't work. I'm like, yeah, they do. They work fine. And he's like, look, look. And he, he holds them up to his head. And I figured out what was wrong. You, you probably already know. He's got them turned the wrong way, Right? He's got them on and he's sitting there with them on and like literally the thing's even further away than what it is in perspective, right? And I'm like, son, just here, let me help you. Turn the binoculars around. Oh, right? You know, it's the aha moment for a 10-year-old. But here's the thing. Our friendships, the wrong friendships in our lives work the exact same way. Those are the people in our lives that when we're around them, 
we will begin to see Christ almost like the reverse end of the binoculars. We'll begin to see Christ in a way that makes him smaller. And we hear this, man. We, we kind of know these kind of people in our lives. They're the kind of people that say, oh, that's cool. You got a faith in Christ. Awesome. That's, that's great. And then never talk about them again, right? Or maybe they'll even go as far when you're around other friends to kind of belittle your faith, right? That's cute. You know, he, he goes to church every Sunday. He's, he's a Jesus follower. That's cute. These are people that we cannot have as our close friends in our lives. People that are constantly detracting us from Christ. And this is a step to ruin for a lot of us, that we have to choose the right kinds of friendships. So Samson is betrayed and he has to pay up. Look at how he pays up in verse 19. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, 30 Philistines, took their apparel and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So that's pretty harsh too, right? And it's interesting because I'm thinking, how could you have possessed those clothing without touching these dead men's body? More than likely, he broke his vow here. But look at verse 19, the end part. So his anger was aroused and he went back up to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion, to his friend who had been his best man. Wow, what a sad situation. All because of the people that Samson decided to put in his life. These 30 friends. And, and it's the same thing that I've seen play out for years now. I had, a, uh, I had the opportunity as a student pastor, and even as a pastor, I've had opportunities like this. But I remember one time going to jail, not arrested, thankfully, but uh, I have been arrested actually as a joke. But anyway, uh, I remember going to a jail where a young, young man was incarcerated, a, a teenager, 18 years old. I remember going to him and sitting across the glass. They had him behind the glass and I was talking to him. I said, hey man, what happened? And he used four words that I've heard a lot. The four words, I had these friends. I had these friends. And we see this in Samson's life, don't we? I mean, if you could sit down with Samson at this point and say, hey man, what happened? I think he would say those four words. I had these friends. What friendships are in your life? I don't care if you're the youngest person in the room or the oldest person in the room. What friendships in your life are ultimately detracting you from Christ? What friendships are ruining your life? I want you to think about that. The story doesn't end for Samson. There's more tragedy coming. Look at chapter five, look at verse one. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, which this is again, really interesting. Samson apparently thinks he's still with this woman, goes to visit her and nothing kicks off a good honeymoon like a young goat. So he goes and he sees his betrothed wives and the father comes out and he says, or the Samson comes and says to him, hey, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. And then he says, is not her younger sister better than she? 
please take her instead. Now, this is a cringe-worthy moment, right? This is about as awkward as it gets. His father has to tell him, hey, she got married to your best man. And, and then he tries to appease him with, hey, isn't, isn't her sister a lot cuter though? I mean, that's kind of what you see here and it kind of makes sense because the father probably knows what Samson's all about, right? So look at how Samson responds to this. Verse three, Samson said to them, this time, I have a right. Listen to that entitlement. This time, I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Step four to ruining your life. If you wanna ruin your life, here it is. Step four, indulge in self-centered anger and self-serving Revenge. This is what we see in Samson's life. Back in, in chapter four, verse 19, it talks about Samson's anger becoming aroused. That there came a point where he began to allow this to take over his life. And the question becomes, how do we react when someone hurts us? This is what we see with Samson. Samson's hurt, he's vulnerable, and now he is trying to process what's happened to him. How does he react when he's hurt? How do we react when we're hurt, how we react in the face of self-serving anger can ultimately ruin us. Now, notice I didn't say just anger. I said self-serving anger. And here's the reason why. Anger is not a sin. Anger is not a sin. And we, we, sometimes we take that word and kind of lump it in with sin. And a lot of times it is displayed sinfully. But anger itself is not a sin. Ephesians 4.26 talks about this. That it says, uh, Paul is encouraging the people there in Ephesus. Hey, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. He's saying, hey, there are appropriate reasons to be angry. And Paul is distinguishing the difference between anger and sin. So anger is not a sin. Anger is a choice. Anger is a choice. Now, if you've got your hand out there, I want you to do me a favor. There's a blank right beside anger is a choice. And it's a big, long blank. And then it says, blank makes me angry. You see that blank there? If you don't have it, you can kind of visualize this. I want you for just a second, I'm gonna give like 10 seconds to this. I want you to write down something last week that made you angry. Just real quick, you can put a word. If, you know, I don't want you like flipping the page and writing a paragraph here, but um, just think about that for just a second. What is it that made you angry last week? What was it? What was that thing that made you angry? All right, now here's what I want you to do. If you visualize that and you've written it in the blank, great. If you got it in your mind, great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your pen. I want you to mark through what you just wrote and wrote above, right above it, nothing. Because here's the thing, anger is a choice. In fact, nothing makes you angry. Nothing makes you angry. Angry, your spouse can't make you angry, right? She can't do it. He can't do it. He can't make you angry. Your children can't make you angry. Your boss can't make you angry. Traffic can't make you angry. The waiter can't make you angry because 
Anger is a choice. You decide to be angry and you decide what kind of anger is gonna come out. You don't determine whether you're hurt or not, but you determine what kind of anger you're going to display. No one makes that happen in you. So there's two kinds of angers that you see in Scripture. Godly anger is the first one. And this is the idea of anger that focuses on God and His desires. That even God Himself gets angry. There's 32 times in Scripture where it says the words, anger of the Lord. Anger of the Lord. That There are times where God exhibits righteous anger, righteous indignation. Jesus got angry. There were times where Jesus displayed anger. In fact, the cleansing of the temple, you guys might have heard that story. You realize that's in all four gospel accounts where Jesus goes into the temple and exhibits pure and righteous and holy anger. There were people in the Bible that got angry, people that, that got angry at the things that God was angry about, and they would actually do great things on behalf of God. First Kings 18, right? The story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He goes in and, and ultimately he slays them. He slaughters them. This is, this is godly anger here, right? Or, or Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. Like that whole letter is open rebuke towards the Corinthians for their behavior. There's righteous anger we see displayed here. And godly anger leads to justice and to change. Godly anger always leads to justice and it always leads to change. That I wanna be angry about the things that anger God because when I am, I can be used as an agent of change on his behalf. You think about things in the world that bother you, things in the world that are just not right. I'm not talking about like somebody getting your order wrong. I'm talking about things like the fact that there are millions upon millions of slaves in the world right now. That angers me. I'm angry at the fact that, that there, there are babies that literally die before they even enter into our world, right? They die right there in the womb. That angers me. And there are all kinds of things like that that anger us. And God wants to use that anger his anger, the things that make him angry, God wants us to use that in a way that affects change and justice in the world. And this is what he wanted for Samson. He wanted him to live out a life filled with this idea of, hey, God is angry. I'm here to, to exact justice on God's behalf. But Samson didn't allow that. He was focused more on this ungodly anger, this anger that's focused on self and getting even. And this anger puts the focus completely on us. In that moment, we don't care about God or others or the big picture. All we care about is this idea of relocating our hurt from us to whoever it was that hurt us. And it comes out a hundred different ways, right? Sometimes it comes out passive aggressive. Sometimes it comes out loud and proud. Sometimes it comes out 10 years later. Sometimes it comes out every single time it happens. But however it comes out, it's this idea, ungodly anger is this idea of us saying, I'm gonna relocate my anger and my hurt. I'm gonna relocate it on that person. I'm gonna get even. 
And this is, this is what it means to have ungodly anger. It's the choice that everyone faces when they're hurt. And Samson is now faced with the same choice when hearing this news. Look at verse four. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes. That's pretty impressive, by the way. And he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire... He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Now, we don't know if this all happened in one day or if he had a campaign of this happening, but he's basically destroying their economy. Then the Philistines said, who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her, the the woman he was going to marry, and her father with fire. Here's the truth about ungodly anger. And we see this right here in Scripture. Ungodly anger always leads to revenge and to destruction. Ungodly anger always hurts you and it hurts the people that you love. There's always collateral damage in the wake of our ungodly anger. Look at verse seven. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, after he finds out about this, I will surely take revenge on you. And it's interesting because we're thinking, didn't you just take revenge like twice at this point? But what we're seeing happen is this deadly cycle, this deadly tornado of revenge and anger between him and the Philistines. And it's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth each one taking in their hits and all all the while, all this collateral damage around him, a downward destructive tornado that gets more and more dangerous the faster the cycle spins. So Samson gets into a personal revenge war with the Philistines. And some of you might be asking, well, isn't this what God wanted, right? I mean, God wanted him to deliver the people from the Philistines. Yes, The answer is yes. And God is working through Samson to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, but he's not being able to work in Samson. God's not, or Samson's not allowing that, which that's gonna be his ultimate downfall, that Samson mistook God's big picture successes for personal character growth. And here's the weird thing about Samson. He never actually benefited from his own accomplishments. He never benefited from his own accomplishments because it was always about revenge or or focusing on self. And we see this with Samson. So Samson gets in this war and then we find Samson at, at at a place where he's hiding out. He's hiding out for what he's done. The Philistines begin now to take out their anger on the Israelites. So the Israelites confront Samson about this. They go and find where he's at. And in verse 11, it says, Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom, where Samson was hiding, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As, listen to this, this is, this is the classic words of someone exhibiting ungodly anger. As they did to me, so I have done to them. So the people of Israel arrest Samson and he willingly goes back into the hands of the Philistines. 
Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came out shouting against him. Then the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it. He breaks his vow again and killed a thousand men with that jawbone. Now again, this is so important for us to understand. This is pretty amazing. A thousand people die that day. A thousand Philistines, people that God is trying to deliver his people from, a thousand go down that day. And the chapter ends with this seemingly, from, from the look of it, a victory, right? This incredible victory that's happened because of the power of God working through Samson. But it's sad because God has been, raising, has been raising them up for moments like these, and yet Samson's focus is not on the things of God. His anger is not burned for what angers God. His anger is towards his own personal revenge, his own personal mindset of getting people, getting the people that have hurt him. And this is where it all comes down for us. Are we gonna be people that are gonna be ruined by our anger and our personal revenge? Are we gonna be people that are ruined by the company that we choose to keep? Or are we going to step out of that ruin and that destruction within our lives? You know, I know we're, we, we we're talking through these steps and it's, it's so interesting. It's like a survey of Samson's life these last three weeks. But I want us to look real quick at what it is that we can do, what it is that God can do through us to put us on a path away from the wrong kind of friendships. If we want a solution to step three, instead of choosing the wrong friends in our life, look at step three, forsake your association with wrong friends and forge a connection with right friends. Now, I know that sounds really campy. It feels like we're about to start singing Kumbaya in here. But here's the truth. This is, this is solid truth that you as an individual have to decide in your life, I'm going to choose to forsake the people, forsake the friendships, those close friendships. I'm gonna choose to forsake the association with those sorts of people because of the fact that they are detracting me from my deliverer. And it's more than just forsaking. It's also this idea of forging, that I'm going to forge the right friendships. I'm gonna forge a connection with the right kind of people that we, we have a responsibility to do that, that we, we expect that out of students, but man, God's telling us that. He's saying, hey, what kind of people are in your life? What kind of people do you go eat breakfast with during the week? What kind of people are you hanging out with? Are these people that are drawing you to God? Or are these people that are belittling Christ in your life? He's saying, hey, don't do that. Allow the right friends in your life. I don't have time to read this, but Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Paul talks about what the right friend really looks like. And you see, right friends, they're compassionate, they're kind, they're humble, they're gentle, they're patient, they're forgiving. And they ultimately sincerely love you and they sincerely love God. That this is what it means to follow after the right kind of friendships. You know, Pastor Gary talks about this all the time. And I, I know why he talks about it. He doesn't talk about it just because it's his responsibility in our church. He talks about it because he knows that the life force, the life force to a future that has victory in it is having the right kind of people around us. 
that we find the right kind of people in the connect groups that we choose to be in. And so, man, that's, that's God's desire for each person in this room, that we would choose the right friendships. But also this idea of anger, that we would forsake our anger, that we would instead submit to God-centered anger and God-serving justice. Romans 12, 17 through 19 says, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That our, our anger and our revenge that we seek, instead of relocating it to the people that have hurt us, God's telling us, hey, submit it to me. Submit it to him and allow God to do what he needs to do. Allow God to work in the hearts of those that have hurt us and allow God to work even in our heart. You know, this is serious. A lot of times we think of angry people and it almost becomes a joke, right? It's like, hey, that, yeah, I'm kind of a hothead around here and ha, 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 everybody laughs about it or you laugh at it at a party, but it's serious. God does, God's desire for us is that we not leave people in our anger in a wake of collateral damage, but that we would lead people in such a way where we are submitting to God-centered anger and we are submitting to saying, God, you do what you need to do, not what I wanna do in this situation. So we are relocating that frustration to God. And we are, we're at the end of uh, this chapter and, and we're about to fall into chapter 16. And, and I just wanna tell you, we see this in Samson's life. We see a life with all these steps happening in his life that are putting him on this path to ruin. And although his life isn't, it doesn't seem ruin here, man, we are about to see the end of Samson's life and the ruin that's coming. And, and I wanna just encourage you, go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. I want you to think about something for just a minute. It's such a, a kind of a negative series because we know kind of how it ends with Samson. We know it's gonna end in destruction. We know it's gonna end in, in, uh, in just a, a wasted, ruined life in a lot of ways. But man, God wants to, to say something to us through that, that, that while Samson's life and story has been written and, and, and that's been told, our story and our life has not been finalized yet. So God is telling us, hey, look at the life of Samson. Look at where he went wrong. Look at these steps of ruin and don't choose those steps. So whether you're in here today and you've got some friendships that maybe you need to change or whether you're in here today and there's some anger, some unrighteous, ungodly anger that's focused on you that you need to deal with, man, allow God to use these messages. Allow God to use the story of Samson to deliver you from what it is that you're dealing with. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward. Uh, we're gonna have an opportunity to give. But as they come forward, let's pray. God, thank you so much, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to walk um, in anger that's focused on what we want. We don't have to walk uh, around with friends that are detracting us from you, Jesus, that are belittling your name, Father. We don't have to do these things. We don't have to be on this path of ruin, God. I pray, Lord, that we could step out of these things, Lord, that we could submit to your justice and you, the things that make you angry, God. I pray, Lord, that we we could choose right friendships, Father. And Lord, I pray, God, that we would 
step off of that path, Lord, and allow you to be our ultimate deliverer. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Because...